listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for August 2019. Today's episode is titled, City of Man versus City of God. Wise organizational leaders and managers understand that organizations exist to serve the will of God. Accordingly, they recognize that all stakeholders, by default, are not inclined to align with God. Therefore, organizational leadership must proactively engage in training all stakeholders to align with the values, principles, and practices that emanate from a Christian worldview. A culture marked by repenting from the default thinking of fallen mankind and embracing biblical thinking is a predicate for building an enduringly successful organization. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, City of Man versus City of God. Well, this morning I'd like to give you an introduction to building equally yoked leadership teams. This is a uh, four-hour teaching uh, that helps leaders of organizations get a picture of how to build organizations biblically. And one of the key things you must do to build organizations biblically is you must build according to a biblical worldview. And you must build with a leadership team who thinks biblically. So that's one of the big challenges of life is getting to that level of thinking. Now it's very important in any uh, organization that you start with a right understanding of the context of your organization. Every organization exists for one purpose, ultimately. I know there can be intermediate purposes. A food store exists to provide food, that's an intermediate purpose. But ultimately that food store exists to serve some role in the purpose of God for his universe. And the main purpose of God we have is given to us in Genesis 1:26, and that is he wants mankind to be his ruling agents here on earth. So that food store there that serves you food really is there to serve you food so that you can do what God has called you to do in his meta-narrative. So you've got to think bigger than just the natural. You've got to think beyond the natural. You've got to think with metaphysical awareness as to what the plan and purpose of God is for eternity and for the universe that we're in here and now. Now I've got a slide up here in front of you that uh, outlines the state that we find ourselves in. And I want to walk you through some, uh, some descriptors of this state. And first, just look at the left and the right side of the slide. You'll see the left side, you have a, a graphic there that I've titled the City of Man uh, or Tower of Babel. Now, the City of Man is a reference to uh, Augustine's book, City of Man, City of God, uh, where he is contrasting the state of mankind as I'm trying to do this morning. I'm paralleling some of the things that Augustine taught in his book. And the City of Man is basically the default condition of mankind. Given that we are fallen now, how does man come into the world? You know, there have been some in the last few hundred years that have articulated that mankind comes into the world with what they call a blank slate, no biases. Now, that is not consistent with the Word of God. The Word of God says we come into this existence with a bias to die, and there's nothing that we by ourselves can do about that we will die. Mankind for centuries has tried to figure out a solution to death. And the only solution to death is the Redeemer. 
Mankind in and of himself cannot redeem himself, cannot bring himself to life. He's born in a default state of death. He's a spiritual death. And at the end of his physical life, there will be natural death. So that is the default state of mankind. That's the city of man. That is where man comes into life and existence in that default state. On the right side is a picture of the Beyond Babel model, which is there to say God has a way for us to live beyond the default state, beyond the way the Tower of Babel participants lived. We can live beyond Babel. This is the city of God. Now, the Tower of Babel participants, uh, what they were all about was self-glory. And they assumed that they had the right and the privilege and the, the freedom to do that. They did not see that their role in this existence was to serve the purpose of God. And so they were serving their own purpose. And that is the default condition of every man, man that is born today. We come into the world very self-centered, very selfish, with a bias to ourselves and thinking that we can do whatever we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, and nobody tells me what to do. And so to be, the only way to get out of that state is going to be through the redemption that comes through Christ and the transforming power that, go, that comes into us to change us the way we think and therefore the way we lived and moves us from the city of man or the Tower of Babel into the city of God and beyond Babel. So this is the, the big overarching picture of reality is we are, have a default state of death and we have to be redeemed into a state of life. Now, the attitude of mankind when we come into this existence is pride. We think we can. We think we know. And we think no one can tell us what to do. And the redeemed state of mankind is humility. One of the ways you know someone has been redeemed is they will display humility. So that's one of the traits of redemption. The next trait of this state is grace. Common grace is a gift of God to all people. When we are born into this existence, the only grace that we have is common grace. Common grace is very, it explains everything in life that is simple and easy. For example, why is it that you breathe? You breathe because of the common grace of God. If there wasn't the common grace of God at work in our physical bodies to cause our bodies to just naturally breathe without even us consciously thinking about it, if there wasn't that grace, we would just immediately die. But that grace is there. There's grace for us to know that we need to rest. There's grace for us to know that we need to eat and to know, and to know what to eat. There's grace for us to be somewhat kind to each other. There's grace for us to learn some of God's principles for how to, to do work and perform useful work. That's all common grace. Without that common grace, we wouldn't be able to do any of that. We'd just die almost immediately. There would be no way that mankind could survive any length of time at all. As it is, mankind can survive fairly long periods of time. We can live 70, 80, 90, 100 years of life and never be redeemed. So it shows you that common grace is a, it, it's a fairly powerful thing. It, it facilitates a lot in us, and even when we're still in a default state of rebellion and death.
So common grace is a great gift. The redeemed life brings us not only common grace, but special grace. Now, this is the special power of the Spirit at work in us to transform the way we think, according to Romans 12, 2, transform our mind, and with this transformed mind, where we think more biblically, more like God, we can begin to discern his will. That's what Romans 12, 2 tells us. Special grace is the grace now to live according to the will and ways of God. Not that we ever do it perfectly. We will never do that perfectly, but we can grow and mature and develop more and more skill in that area and get more and more aligned with God. And we live more and more in the city of God and less and less in the city of man. So there's a progression that happens. When we're redeemed, we are positionally placed in the city of God, but our practices still reflect much of the city of man so there's this transformation that happens where more and more our practices reflect our new position of being in the city of God. So this is the special grace of God at work in us to enable us and empower us to live more obediently to Christ. Then we have the source of wisdom. You see, the source of wisdom in the default state is just the world. Worldly metrics, worldly ideas, worldly thinking, Whereas the source of wisdom in the, uh, the city of God is God himself. We recognize that we've come from a creator. Everything has come from that creator. Everything emanates from that creator. There's nothing that exists outside the purview of that creator. And he defines all wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is the skill to live well in God's universe. And knowledge is an understanding of how God's universe works. So God defines the knowledge, and he defines the skill to use that knowledge to live aligned with him. So God is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. I'm getting ready to prepare a, a young man to take a, uh, a college course. He's a high school student. I believe he'll be a senior next year, so he's between his junior and senior years. And he's going to Harvard University to take a course on logic. And so I bought the textbook, and I intend to do some studying over the next few weeks, and we're going to meet sometime toward the end of May, early June, and we're going to talk about his two-week course where he's going to Harvard University, and he's going to study logic under a professor up there. And my objective is to point out to him that he's going to hear largely worldly wisdom, worldly thinking. On one level, I don't like to even call it worldly wisdom. I just, it's really, to me, it's worldly thinking, okay? There may be some wisdom in it. If it is, it's been stolen from God because the only true wisdom is from God. And so I want to challenge him and prepare him to hear this worldly thinking and to filter it through godly wisdom, godly thinking. And so that's, that's the difference. The default is always going to be to worldly thinking. And sadly, Harvard University, which was established by John Harvard, a very godly man back in the 17th century, and for 200 years it existed as a very, very strong Christian institution. But in the latter part of the 19th century, when liberalism was sweeping the country, sweeping the United States, Harvard went liberal, as almost every other Christian institution did. And since then, so now for over 100 years, Harvard has rejected Christ 
as the source of wisdom and has adopted worldly wisdom. And furthermore, they have tried to expunge from their campus any memory of Christianity and John Harvard, which is a travesty. But that's what the world does. That's what we do when we're in the default state. We reject the truth and we embrace lies and deception as the truth. Now, obviously, there's some level of truth that we do receive or we wouldn't be able to exist at all. Whatever level of truth we do receive as worldly people is always stolen from Christ because Christ is the repository of all wisdom and knowledge according to Colossians chapter 2. So wisdom, the only true wisdom, comes from God, and if the world has any wisdom at all, it is stolen from God, and this is the default state that we find ourselves in. The next element of this is empowerment. Empowerment is where does the power come from for you to do whatever it is that you do? And the default state says, I have the power within me. I have the potency within me. So human potency becomes, you know, the source of my power. I can do what I want to do. That is a huge presupposition that we make today. It neglects, it neglects the Christian truth of the fallenness of man. And one of the things I like to, to do when I run into people that are into human potency is I, I confirm. They ask him questions like, okay, you're sure you have the power to do whatever you want to do. You claim you have free will. You can do whatever you want to do. Oh, yeah, I can. And one of my questions to him is, that I say, okay, will you, will you will to go to the moon right now? And, of course, very quickly they realize they can't do that. They can't will to go to the moon instantaneously on the spot. So I said, well, that means you don't have completely free will then, right? And they immediately recognize that they don't. And usually they'll acknowledge, well, I, I realize now that my ability to exercise choice has limitations. There's only so much choice I can do. So you are not really as free as you say. That means you don't have the power to do whatever you want to do. You have some limited power to do certain things. But you can't do anything. And see, what we have to realize that in the default state is we are very limited to make good choices. It takes divine potency to really make good choices consistently in life, to choose right over wrong. Right now, there's great confusion over right and wrong, great confusion over marriage, great confusion over when life starts, great confusion over the choice of whether or not we can choose our gender or that's chosen for us. There's great confusion over ethics. The scriptures are not confused. When you look at scriptures, you see the scriptures are clear. God defines ethics. That is the biblical redeemed view. The worldly default view is that we think we can self-define our ethical standards. That was what Adam and Eve were after in the garden. They wanted to self-define. And that's the ultimate, the, the sin pattern that's in every one of us, and it ultimately leads us to death because we can never self-define. Then we have the metric. How do we measure things? You see, man wants to measure things by himself. This is called homo mensura. In the city of God, we measure things by God. That's called deus mensura. Deus is the Latin word for God. 
So Dysman Sura says that God is the measure of everything. He's the measure of all ethics. He's the measure of what marriage is and how marriage should function. God is the measure of success. He's the measure of truth and reality. He's a measure of purpose and meaning in life. You see, one of the downfalls of the default state of mankind is there is no credible way for mankind to define meaning and purpose in life. Left to himself, man only has a meaningless life, which is why you come, some philosophers come to some extremes like God is dead or nihilism, which means there's nothingness, there's no purpose, no meaning in life. On, on one level, that's a truthful statement from a default position. The default view of mankind is meaningless, but in the redeemed view of man, in the redeemed life, in the seat of God, there's great meaning and purpose because God has defined it. And we have to let him be the definer and the metric of, by which all of reality is measured. The motive in the default state is always man's will. In the redeemed state, it is God's will. The city of man is always about man and man's self-exalting. The city of God is all about exalting God. God's will, God's way for God's glory in God's timing. It's all about him. In the city of man, it's all about what's in it for me. In the city of God is what's in it for God. So we've got to get really clear in the distinction here between the city of man and the city of God. And finally, success. Success in the city of man is all about temporal success. It's about money. It's about fame. It's about, about influence. This is the measure of success. In the city of God, success is eternal first and temporal second. In fact, you look at Jesus and say, was Jesus a success? He died. He died broke. He was homeless, homeless, he was jobless, he was abandoned by his followers, abandoned by the religious leaders, a seemingly a failure from a worldly metric, he was a failure, but yet he was the greatest success who ever lived, because his success was first and foremost measured eternally. He died for the sins of mankind. That was his purpose. He came to die. I was listening to Dennis do a teaching here recently where he talked about all the different ways that Jesus could have died before he actually died. And what's interesting to reflect on is the fact that Jesus, uh, after the fall, Jesus is the only human being that's been born of woman that was not born fallen because he was not conceived of by man. You see, the, the, depra the depraved nature of mankind comes through the seed of the man. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born by a woman, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he was born sinless. And so he was not under the curse of death. He did not have to die. But yet he came to die. And then there are multiple times in Scripture, six, seven, eight times, where he could have died prior to the cross. In every occasion, he chose not to die. But when it came to the time of the cross, he gave up his life. You see, he didn't have to die on the cross. The Romans didn't really have control of him. The Jewish people didn't really have control of him. He surrendered his life to die on the cross. That was his willing death on our behalf. 
So Jesus was eternally successful first and foremost. And secondarily, you could start talking, look at his temporal successes. What did he do? He ultimately was the one that has changed the world. He's influenced people like no other. He has no lack of resources. And he today is one of the most revered men in history. So temporally, he ultimately became everything that we regard as great in the world. But that's secondary to his eternal success of bringing life and bringing a redeemed community into existence. Without him, there would be no redeemed community. We would all be languishing in the default state of death. So Christ, it gives us the true metric of success. Eternal success, spiritual success, you know, intangible success first, and secondarily, whatever level of temporal success God chooses for us. When we see that, we realize God thinks so much bigger than we do. His plans and purposes are so much broader and bigger than ours. And we have to begin to really embrace him, his will, his ways, his timing, his purpose, his meaning, his significance, his metrics, his power, his grace, and of course the humility to live in fellowship with him. This is what it means to be a Christian. And the training here, building equally yoked leadership teams, it starts first and foremost about getting very clear about being in this state of life, being in the redeemed state, and now coming together as leadership teams where everybody on the team is in that state. And we are gathered to build an organization that God has ordained, and that organization exists for one purpose, and that is to fulfill the creation mandate. And ultimately, if we're doing our job right, you know, as Christian leaders, we will be training every organizational leader, no matter what organization they're leading, they must see the purpose of God for the organization in the context of God's great story of history, which is in the context of ruling God's creation according to his will and his ways. The food store does not primarily exist to provide food. It primarily exists to serve the purpose of God in God's meta-narrative and to be a tool, a means by which God would disperse resources to people so they would have the strength and energy to obey him. So the food that they provide is just a means to serve the purpose of God. You have to begin to see your work, your organization in light of that. You will never do that well if you don't have an equally yoked leadership team that thinks biblically and lives in the redeemed state individually and then as a community to lead the organization. So may the Lord give us grace to build organizations that God has ordained with leadership teams that God has redeemed and may we do it according to his will, his way, and in his timing. And we always see the eternal purpose first and secondarily the natural purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>